Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, uh, Tom Brady posted the most divorced dad energy selfie I've ever seen, and I just I'm still reeling from it, and I haven't had anyone to talk to about it. I somehow missed this. Uh, I, I, I've stopped uh, consuming Brady content. You should um, continue to miss it. It's him taking a picture of himself in a mirror in his underwear, covering up his crotch. It's worse than you could ever imagine. So we are we're at the early stages of a pretty significant midlife crisis. It sounds. It like. It feels that way. Yeah. It does feel that way. Yeah. It's um. It's not good. It's uh. It's pretty ridiculous. But anyway, people don't like this part of the show. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of important <laughs> stuff today, but we're going to start with something very stupid, Ben, which is the freakout over the Chinese spy balloon. Mm. We're going to help separate out what we should all take seriously and what is just hyperbolic media and political nonsense. We're also going to talk a bit about the State of the Union. It's hard for us because we record this on Tuesday and it comes out on Wednesday, but there's some interesting polling about foreign policy messaging and approval. We'll talk about Trump's reported plan to run as a dove. That one feels familiar (laughs) to me, Ben. Uh, The catastrophic earthquake in Turkey and Syria, the Pope's visit to Africa. We'll talk about Haiti, Ukraine, and an update uh, from the Taliban on work-life balance. And then, Ben, you talked to a good friend of the pod, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, today. What did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about the fact that uh, the Republicans voted to remove her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which was kind of a mixture of retribution for their, like, you know, neo-Nazi members getting voted off their committees, mm-hmm. um, but also like kind of had the reek of uh, of, of racialized targeting. Uh, so we talked about why that happened, how she's thinking about it, how she's going to continue to speak out on uncomfortable issues, uh, whether it's criticizing aspects of American foreign policy or pointing to the less than stellar human rights records of, of some of America's partners around the world, um, and just how she's going to continue to have a voice on these things, particularly around issues related to Africa, some of the things she's focused on. So it's a good conversation. And as I said to her, she's deplatformed on the, the House Foreign Affairs Committee. She she can be replatformed at parts of the world, at least. So she's, well, I mean, she's a member of good standing of this committee. Yeah, and I guess all Democrats in the House have been uh, shadow banned uh, to some extent. I, I'm a big uh, fan of her pushing uh, on certain issues that don't often get pushed on, like sanctions and a lot of other things. Peter Byer yeah. had a great piece about all the tough questions that uh, Congresswoman Omar has asked on the committee that others haven't that's worth reading. Uh, Okay, Ben, so we are hopefully uh, exiting one of the dumbest news cycles in the history of news cycles, which is the Chinese spy balloon meltdown of 2023, balloon gate, balloon Ghazi, the balloons Katrina. Uh, (laughs) I think we should divide this into two parts. First, we'll take the balloon seriously, and then we can explain why the freak out is dumb. Make sense? That sounds good to me, Tommy. Okay, everyone's going to just skip to the second part. So the first part... It's worth noting that NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, they, their primary mission is to track Santa and then to keep track of you know North America every other day of the year. They have come out and said they failed to detect the 
previous Chinese spy balloons that came into our airspace, given the billions we spend on, I don't know, radar, the U.S. military, everything else, that's not great. No. That's a tough press conference for that four-star general to uh, give. But my understanding is that these previous spy balloons kind of dipped in and out of U.S. airspace. When the latest one yeah. floated across the country, you didn't need a radar. You just need like grandpa to put his glasses on and like look up and then you could you could find the thing. Yeah. Yeah. When we're all watching on cable news, I think uh, it wasn't exactly hard to detect. You know? Yeah, no. So, but something to worry about. Um, the balloon probably has upgraded spy gear. Uh, ben, I read a research paper from the Pentagon called The Paradigm Shift to Effects-Based Space Near Space as a Combat Space Effects Enabler. And Wait, I just want to ju- say, you're just getting around to reading that. You didn't read that when it came <laughs> yeah. out off the presses, you know. Well, what I was wondering from you is like, why can't you come up with a title like that? You know, after the fall, what about near combat space enabler? That's some good stuff. Yeah, and people wonder why, like ordinary people, don't read more of these documents. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, I skipped around a lot. So here's the short version of why balloons are good for spying. So these near space platforms, like the balloon, is an object between sixty-five thousand feet and 325,000 feet, they can basically stay up indefinitely. They can surveil an 850-mile diameter field of view, and distance really matters when it comes to image resolution. So the same optics on a spy balloon will get you 10 to 20 times better resolution on images than those optics on a satellite, just because it's closer. Similarly, an antenna on a balloon will collect much weaker radio signals, and they don't have to deal with technical issues that arise when those signals pass through the upper atmosphere. So we know this balloon went over military sites that are very sensitive. I'm sure those have been photographed in the past by Chinese satellites. But I did notice there was a Wall Street Journal report today about a Pentagon report to Congress on how China now has more land-based intercontinental ballistic uh, missile launchers than the United States. And they're reportedly trying to triple their nuclear arsenal by 2035. So new information, new context. Lastly, you just shouldn't, you know, fly into another country's airspace, even if spy agencies probably do it all the time. So Ben, obviously, uh, President Biden took this seriously since they shot it down. They grounded lots of planes, et cetera, et cetera. Let's go back to what those sit room meetings must have been like to about what to do about this thing. Like, what do you think the national security team was most focused on, took the most seriously and in, in the kind of options that got presented to Joe Biden? Well, I think there's like, what is the concern with the balloon? And then there was the like, what do you do about the balloon? Um, and, you know, and what is concerning about the balloon I think it demonstrates that that China is really ramping up its efforts to kind of have a multi-dimensional effort to spy on the United States, right? So we've known for years that they try to hack into U.S. government computers, private sector computers. They have a very sophisticated satellite network and space capability. And to your point, if these balloons were focused on nuclear sites, military facilities, getting uh, like higher quality intelligence than a satellite could give you, this is happening in concert with them ramping up and modernizing their own nuclear forces. And in a way, they may be doing kind of what we in the Soviet Union did to each other through the Cold War, which is wanting to have kind of total insight into the different capabilities of the United States to kind of plan for any contingency, mm-hmm. you know, including the nuclear war, which I've seen like once. Day, yeah. But I, I, so I think it does show, okay, these guys are, are really trying to kind of peer-to-peer compete with us strategically um, and, 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 you know, Part of what you want to do is learn, like from that spy balloon, you know what's on it, what are the equipment they're using, can we intercept whatever messages it's sending back to the mothership there in China. So one is just like if I'm in the super meeting, I ho- I bet a whole first half of the meeting is just the intelligence segment, like what do we know about this balloon, what what do we think it's doing, 
What can we learn about Chinese intentions from what it's doing? Um, and then there was a question of whether to shoot this down. This is a no-brainer, Tommy. <laughs> like, uh, if yeah. I'm a president of the United States and someone's like, well, I want to shoot down this balloon, and then the general's like, well, we can't guarantee that like debris from this balloon won't fall into someone's living room or onto somebody's car because it's going to spread across a 15 football fields area. You're not going to shoot down that balloon. It would be insane to shoot down it's that nuts. balloon. So then you're just like waiting until it gets to a place where you can shoot it down and have a plan to get the stuff that falls into the water. And so that that to me was all pretty straightforward. I think the last piece is like trying to design whether China meant to do this when Tony Blinken was yeah. supposed to go there or whether their their military wasn't talking to somebody else in the system. Where do you and, land on that debate? I mean, I do I I I land on the side, guesswork this is, right, that, that I do think that it suggests that their system wasn't coordinated, right? Yeah, because why would they too. go through the trouble of like having this whole reset and having this meeting in Indonesia where they choreographed it and then Tony Blinken's going to come out? You wouldn't do all that just to wreck it with a balloon. Um, no. And so I do think it points to kind of some incompetence in their system and some lack of coordination and coming on the heels of like how they mishandled COVID, like... It's a reminder that these guys may not be the A team, you know, um, even though that's the vibe that they wanted to give off. Yeah. And also, I, it, you know, I don't obviously I don't know how this balloon works completely, but I didn't get the sense from anything I read that you could like program it to get to from X to point Y in like two days time or something like that. Yeah. I and mean, you're riding wins. So ultimately, it's, it's up to chance here. Then uh, this balloon was shot down by an F-22. By some estimates, the total cost of development and production of the F-22 is over $350 million per plane. The life cycle cost, which includes like fuel, spare parts, maintenance during like a 40-year lifespan, gets you up to $678 million per plane. This is according to a Wired Magazine report. So uh, congrats to the F-22 on its first air-to-air <laughs> yeah. -air kill in history. Kind of like a military-industrial complex advertisement. But it was like, you know... Top Gun Maverick, like they have to like basically run the like Star Wars gamut of the Iranian nuclear program and dodge mountains and stuff. And in fact, actually, the sequel is really just shooting down a three-story tall balloon. I guess you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shout out to that pilot. Uh, yeah, for, yeah, for it doing must a, hell fun. a good job. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh oh, we got a balloon. Is that Chinese? I hope that we're dealing with American balloons only on so the show. So the Republican response uh, to the balloon <laughs> uh, and the roadblock hyperbolic media coverage, is, it's really one of the most ridiculous thing I've seen in politics. <laughs> As we speak, House uh, <laughs> Republicans... Sorry, we should take this a little more seriously. This is Republicans, the content, this is the this content is good that we need. Yeah. This is our... This is a relative. We're sending a message to other balloons right now by deflating this thing. Uh, I'll wait till my voice gets better. So House Republicans are preparing a resolution condemning the balloon. I don't know that that balloon is weaponized. We'll find out. Uh, poor Haley had to go to three party cities because there's a helium shortage. So <laughs> House Republicans are preparing a resolution condemning the balloon because balloons are, are famously, uh, they hate being condemned. Uh, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy wanted a resolution condemning Biden's handling of the balloon but I guess that got shot down. But like, here's just a sampling of how hysterical the balloon coverage was over the past couple of days. Here's a clip. The catastrophic Chinese spy balloon spectacle clearly threatened American families from Alaska to Missouri. This confirms that President Biden and Vice President Harris should resign. If you've ever seen the movie Independence Day, where people are coming out to their porches, they're they're pulling over their cars. It really reminded me of that. Hmm. We've got 100 million or more TikTok users. That's a balloon in everyone's house. 
If they know Joe freezes at the first sight of a balloon, the next balloon might be filled with another virus. Pop, droplets all over. We're all on ventilators again. I have another question. Why haven't we shot this balloon out of the sky? Oh, Joe Biden is the president. Or how about you ram it with the Goodyear blimp? Uh, Since the Chinese are telling us it's a weather balloon, I'm almost thinking it's a weather balloon. I almost think it's a double bluff from China. We had plenty of capacity to, to scoop that balloon out of the air. We used to do it all the time. Did that balloon take off from Wuhan? How about COVID-22, 23, whatever year it is? Did it drop and disperse surveillance products powered by solar energy to allow unlimited surveillance? Pretty good stuff, huh? Now, <laughs> I mean, that was a lot just, of Fox. That's great work by our team. Uh, amazing editing. Amazing. Yeah. But Ben, like, so that was Fox. There, there were still a lot of uh, serious journalists talking about what a grave moment this was for U.S.-China relations. I didn't hear a single person on TV being like, hey, guys, we spy on China all the time. They spy on us. We don't have to take this personally. It's not about our collective ego as a nation. And I think the reason you and I harp on this stuff is you do have to recognize the fact that the end result of constant alarmism is always this pressure for Biden or any other president to respond militarily. And we really don't need the conversation about China to get more hawkish. It's kind of already there. I mean, I just got to say, Tommy, this is some like dark end of empire shit that we're listening to here. Like that, how how scared and small do we have to be to be a society that can produce those clips, even if those are the craziest people among us? Those are people like in positions of very real power saying batshit crazy stuff. And like, let's just pull back here. Like we spy on China. They spy on us. What, did, did you not see the movies about the U-2 planes in like the 1950s? This is not new, okay? Now, I'm not saying that that means we should invite over every spy balloon to this country, but it does mean that this is a fucking batshit crazy way to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and losing all perspective. Um, the balloon is a threat to every American. W- why? Like, like what, 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 I mean. Independence the, the, Day? Those, those in, were aliens. <laughs> I mean, those were aliens who were destroying cities. Like, if I recall... <laughs> In Independence Day, like the giant ship would be like over New York where I am now, and then like New York would evaporate. They smoked the White House. Yeah, like I think that was a little bit more of an emergency moment than the fucking balloon drifting over the Montana. I mean, people need to get their shit together here. But the serious point I make about this, Tommy, is like we are in what is clearly going to be like probably a multi-decade competition with China, whether you affix the kind of Cold War label to it or not. We're going to be in really tense situations. There are going to be situations where our spies stop. We've had a spy plane shot down near in China. 2001. In yeah. 2001, right? We're going to have like tensions in the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea. There are going to be hacks back and forth. And our capacity to avoid that competition becoming a war depends on us being grownups and not being exactly. like exactly. four years old in this country. And what worries me about the political and media response to this balloon is... What's going to happen when it's like an even graver crisis? And like, as you said, all the political incentives and momentum are, are going to be to ratchet up the conflict. We have to at some point get our mixture of like like late empire energy and xenophobia and all the rest of it under fucking wraps or else we're going to find ourselves in a war over a balloon, right? which is not anywhere you want to be. We, we just psych ourselves out. It's so wild. And And by the way, Joe Biden has been really tough on China. Just last week, they signed a deal with the Philippines to get the U.S. access to even more military bases on the island. That could place U.S. forces 
less than 200 miles away from Taiwan. So like you have to try in diplomacy to have some empathy for your opponents and your allies and sort of see things from their shoes. And if we're going to have a meltdown about a balloon, how are they going to react to, I don't know, a whole bunch more Marines creeping closer to their their country? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to be able to like manage this competition and manage this occasional, occasional even confrontation with China so it doesn't like spill into an actual conflict here. And, you know, part of what gets me to Tommy is like, I think that I'd like to think that people listen to Potsy of the World, or, you know, the kind of people like tracking what's going on. You know, you hear a lot about how Americans don't care more about foreign policy. Americans don't care more about national security. Well, like, one of the reasons why is because like the American news media and politicians treat people like they're five years old when they talk about exactly. these things. So exactly. you don't hear anything about China until there's like a balloon and then everybody has a complete collective freak out and they're reaching for whatever analogy they can like to make this the most scary thing in the world. It's Independence Day. It's like that, I know it's that disaster movie where like if you make a noise, somebody kills you or something. Mm -hmm. Like th this is this is not like a grown up way of dealing with it. And to your point, like Joe Biden, I, I mean, what is the the substance of the Republican critique? Whoever that was, I think it was McCarthy who said it was a catastrophe and all the rest. Like, uh, yeah, it happened a couple of days too late, I guess. Because would he, be yeah, he, he took the, the he, shooting. He, that's it, right? Like, he, what did he not do that they wanted him to do? Because like the Chinese would be spying on this country no matter who's president, right? Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, whomever, they're going to send balloons, right? And, and so this whole thing is just about whether he should have shot the balloon down over a bunch of people or waited for it. To, like, Because right. what was lost in that time when the balloon was in the air? Like, I mean, I, this, it, is, yeah. this is just Nothing. insanity. You know? and, and by the way, George W. Bush had to write uh, an apology letter to the Chinese government in 2001 to get them to release the 24 airmen who the Chinese government held after they had to make a crash landing because a U.S. spy plane uh, collided with a Chinese uh, fighter and the Chinese fighter pilot was killed. So again, like, yeah, it could be a lot worse. Um, and it's absurd. And I would say like one of the other interesting things substantively out of this thing, Tommy, is that at first when this came out, you could tell the Chinese are kind of embarrassed, you mm -hmm. know? Because they didn't deny it. And they're like, well, you know, like they put out this kind of sheepish statement. It was a weather balloon. Nobody believed that. They had to know that nobody was going to believe that. And, and so th they didn't have that kind of belligerent wolf warrior thing that they do. But then like once this thing got, you know, kicked into hyperspace, then they ratcheted up their response too, like almost in response to our response, you know. But I, I think this, at the end of the day, was an embarrassing Intelligence failure by the Chinese. Like of their course. balloon, their balloon just drifted into plain view and got shot down. Like this didn't go. <laughs> this didn't go well for China. You know. I know. I know. And it's like if the roles were reversed and some U.S. spy asset got spotted by the Chinese and they shot it down, the same Republicans would be saying that that yeah. was some impeachable offense and attacking Joe Biden. So you just got to know these conversations are stupid and they're not on the level, and we shouldn't take these people seriously. All right, that felt good. And by the it's way, Biden, fun of it. I'm glad you smoked that balloon. So we're recording this on Tuesday, February 7th. It's a couple hours before the State of the Union, so we can't cover it because of the timing when the show comes out. But uh, the Washington Post and ABC News released a poll over the weekend, pegged around the so too. And there were two foreign policy data points that jumped out at me, Ben. First, approval of President Biden's handling of the situation in Ukraine is at 38% approved, 48% disapproved. So that's a little worrisome, uh, especially given how well he's handled it, you know? Yeah. And then... Handling of the border is even worse. It's 28% approve, 59% disapprove. So we'll get into a lot more substantive updates about Ukraine later. But I was wondering what you make of those, you know, challenging foreign policy polling numbers. And if there's a way for Biden to, I don't know, move the public 
uh, on these issues, not just in the State of the Union, but really over the next, I guess, year, two years? So I, I guess I, I think that on the Ukraine number, um, one of the things I've been a little worried about is that there's like an elite conversation about Ukraine, like kind of mm-hmm. a blob, national security type conversation. And then there's like everybody else's uh, view of this war. Yeah. And it, and let the me say- The elites call like, you a push Putin stooge if you, if you <laughs> oppose say, their yeah, plan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and um, I, like like you, I believe Biden has handled this really well. And I, you know, I think people listen to this podcast know we've been willing to criticize the Biden administration where we think that they, they have not handled things well, but they've calibrated this line. They've helped things together. They've helped the Ukrainians, you know, beat back um, the Russians. Um, however, what worries me is that there's a lot of attention to the kind of elite narrative around Ukraine, like the op-ed page of the Washington Post or the speakers at the Munich Security Conference. And, you know, I go to some of these events and it's kind of taken as a given that this is for this sure. great moment for U.S. foreign policy. But like, that is not what most people see. No. And if I do have a critique or, or some advice to the Biden people, it's to stop just talking to those elite audience. You've got the columnists, you know, like like David Brooks supports your Ukraine policy. Mm-hmm. Like, and you need a simplified message that you can deliver around the country to people about what you're doing and why it matters and why it's worth it, you know? And you're not, you can't take for granted that they even know what NATO is or the... And so I do think it's a warning sign of sorts that if we're going to keep doing this level of assistance, which I think we're going to have to do for a long time here, um, we need a, a message, you know, to, to use the hackish term that we used to use. But like there needs to be a Main Street message here, not just like Definitely. a Massachusetts Avenue think tank thing. And so the, the State of the Union hopefully can be the beginning of that. Um, and the border, I, you know, I, I like, you, you know, we've talked about this. I, I There I just think they they have to use the Republican scrutiny in some ways to actually tell a story because they haven't really told a story about the border. Like, I'm actually not, I, I'm not sure I could tell you what their policy is, well, you know? Here's uh, one data uh, point know. that might be relevant. So a few weeks, you know, we talked a while back about President Biden creating this new immigration process, this new parole process for migrants from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti. There's a lot of reasons Uh, to criticize that proposal. It changes the way asylum works, et cetera, et cetera. But the Washington Post reported that illegal crossings by migrants from those four countries are down more than 95%. So I imagine like that's a data point that you'll start to hear a lot going forward. Yeah. No, I think that they need to, they need to like acknowledge that this is a real challenge, but like, again, like a lot of things, this would be a challenge for anybody who is president. And they just need to start to kind of communicate how they're trying to make the problem better. And and I'm sure they are doing this, but like, they have to use the scrutiny to have a story. What are the three or four most important things that they're doing to kind of reverse this trend that has a humane component as well as an enforcement component? Um, and and this is going to be part of the landscape for the next couple of years. And again, as you and I have said, like there are steps that they can take on Cuba policy, Haiti policy, Venezuela policy in mm-hmm. particular, which is driving a lot of this migration to reduce humanitarian suffering so as to reduce the flow to the border. And I think that they should take that on and draw that connection. Yeah. So Biden's likely opponent, as we all know, is Donald Trump. Politico had a piece this week about how Trump plans to run as the peace candidate. This gets us back to Ukraine again. Part of that is positioning himself against military support for Ukraine. Here's a clip uh, from a video Trump released on February 1st. As I have said many times before, Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have never happened If I was in the White House, not even thinkable, not even a possibility. We must end this ridiculous war and demand peace in Ukraine now 
before it gets worse. And believe it or not, it would be easy to do. Not a lot of detail there, Ben. Um, but believe you it know, or not, Tommy. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Simple, yeah. though. Uh, the strategy also means Trump positioning himself against his likely primary opponents, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, our buddy, uh, and Ron DeSantis. A couple of problems I see with this primary strategy, Ben, is like, first of all, Pompeo, Haley, they work for Trump. So did John Bolton, who he attacks as a crazy warmonger. So it's not like a clean argument to be like, all these guys I selected to work for me are (laughs) warmongers. On the flip side, like, what is Mike Pompeo going to do? Take credit for things that he did on Trump's behalf? I I don't get any of it. The DeSantis piece is also weird. I think they suggested they're going to highlight old congressional votes. Color me skeptical that you get a lot of traction there. I mean, DeSantis saying uh, he'll cut Social Security. That sounds more interesting to me. But um, also been like Trump tried this before. I remember the Donald the Dove, Hillary the Hawk. Maureen Dowd column. Ah, yes. Infamous one. Uh, That was when his record was lying about opposing the Iraq war when he was actually in favor of it. Now he had four years in the White House that includes uh, assassinating the top Iranian general and nearly starting a massive war with Iran. So I don't know. What do you make of this pitch? It's just like some silly Politico thing or like actually the path he'll pursue. No, I think it's uh, something we should take seriously. I think it's a path he'll pursue. You even, you know, throughout his presidency, he would talk about um, you, you know, he would talk about ending wars when, in fact, he actually, in addition to assassinating a general, he sent tens of thousands of more U.S. troops to the Middle East as the kind mm-hmm. of a, like a little offering to the Saudis. Um, right. Yep. Um, so there's a, there's a substantive pushback that needs to be made here. But I do think it connects to what we were just saying about Ukraine. You know, the, the American public is not crazy about wars in general, it's particularly if we're fighting the wars. And so Ukraine is kind of like in this other space where most people's experience of that is they're seeing this terrible stuff on television. Um, it's horrible. Their sympathies are probably with Ukraine, but they're also worried about getting too far into it. And if you've got Trump kind of locking in like a huge chunk of the Republican Party behind this kind of isolationism, let's have peace, let's get out of there, let's be done with this. And then you factor in as you know, like there's a chunk of the Democratic electorate that is just anti-war too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they just don't like war for, for I think, better reasons than Yeah, Trump. understandable reasons, yeah. Or the you're, spending. You're dealing with a pretty delicate, you know, balance of, of where do you find the support for this Ukraine policy? And it, it, it's going to have to involve some Republicans because there's not enough Democrats. The reason you get like that under 40 number is if, if Republicans are against the war in Ukraine because Biden supports the Ukrainians, and then you get the Democrats who don't like war, period. That's what gets you down to 38%. And I think they have to take that very seriously, given that this is going to be a multi-year commitment. And and, and I think it also points to the absurdity of the Pompeos and who, who still think it's like 2002 and the way to like win the presidency is to kind of flex on all these foreign policy issues. There's not really an electorate for that anymore, no. you know? No, there's no neocon electorate that I can see. Meanwhile, though, Ben, today over on True Social, Trump was literally retruthing some random person accusing DeSantis of grooming high school girls while he was a teacher. So that's probably the more likely path this primary goes, (laughs) uh, unfortunately. That's more likely than a nuanced debate about Ukraine policy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh, man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I Listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Okay, let's turn to Turkey in Syria, where a massive uh, 7.8 magnitude earthquake and several powerful aftershocks have devastated parts of both countries. More than 7,300 people are confirmed dead, and that number will almost certainly rise. Compounding the problem is the fact that it's freezing cold there. People are still trapped in the rubble or just now homeless. Uh, the Syrian areas impacted have been decimated by a decade of war. Some parts of the impacted areas are controlled by the Syrian government. Uh, they still get very little in the way of government services, but Assad nominally controls them. Other Syrian areas are controlled by rebel groups and de are densely packed with millions of people displaced by the fighting. We spoke with Karim Xayez, who is the co-investigator of research for health system strengthening in Syria, about how you can help. Uh, and we also got some exclusive audio from Taj Al-Qaizi, the Syrian field director for the International Rescue Committee. Taj was in Turkey at the time of the earthquake. Take a listen. It was really strong. My whole apartment was shaking. I immediately jumped from bed, got my phone, my jacket, and I ran down to the building. There was chaos and people were leaving the building in their pajamas. Although it was uh, uh, snowing outside, many people were without jackets and even 
with their undershirts. The worst part of the experience yesterday was the unknown. We seriously didn't know where to go and what to do. We are just waiting to receive uh, messages and we are uh, hoping for the best and not to see our apartment collapsing and not to hear uh, bad news about uh, our people. In one town only, in this town called Jenderis in Afrin district, northwest Aleppo, in this town only, there are more than 100 buildings that were completely collapsed. And there are no rescue teams now. Only the white helmets, the civil defense, they are trying their best to help. And now they were able to to extract few people under the rubble. But I believe that there are many more. We have more than 6,000 or 7,000 are still under the rubble waiting for the rescue missions to come and help. So as of today, there are still people under the rubble. I know a lot of my friends who are still missing. I can't believe how my parents and my brother in Hatay in Antakya, they were able to escape the buildings before it collapsed. But a lot of people, they did not make it. So we're talking about three main areas in terms of the political control. So we have the southern areas of Turkey. We have two areas in northwest of Syria. So the first one, which is controlled by the government of Syria, by the Assad regime, and it's mainly Aleppo city and Hamas city. And those areas, although the the infrastructure is really devastated because of the conflict, um, the government of Syria, they they have their like an international ally to support them, mainly the Russians and the Chinese, to support the rescue committee there. But I'm hugely concerned with the third area, which is the opposition-controlled areas in northwest of Syria, because these areas are basically a no-state areas. So there is no central entity to lead the response. It's only the response, you know, is only made by the civil society, the NGOs there. Without the international support and the humanitarian interventions in that area, there is no other support. There is no government to respond. There is no international line that can go directly to that uh, to that areas. And we should not forget that these areas have witnessed the brunt of the atrocities of 12 years of the Syrian conflict. Really good guidance there in terms of sort of where to target your relief. So in Turkey, President Erdogan has declared a three-month state of emergency in the affected areas. President Biden called Erdogan to offer condolences, and the U.S. is sending search and rescue teams. Aid agencies are calling on the U.S. and Europe to lift sanctions on Syria to make it easier to provide humanitarian assistance to the people hurt. Um, so Ben, look, first of all, like lifting some or all sanctions seems like a, a no-brainer to me, and maybe an opportunity for the U.S. to do something politically hard. That will ultimately they'll get there anyway down the road. And then second, you know, I read that something like 13 million Turkish citizens are affected by the earthquakes. And so far, the government response has been a catastrophic failure. And Turkey is supposed to have an election in May. I mean, I wonder if this could become a big problem for Erdogan, since they're also dealing with runaway inflation and a lot of problems, though that assumes that Erdogan lets the elections, you know, happen. Yeah, I let's. Uh, you're right to kind of break this into the two pieces, right? And and j- first of all, like, if you were to look at a map of the entire world and pick, like, the worst place I know for there to be this scale of earthquake, like, it's actually arguably this place. It's I like mean, Syrian these, Haiti, like suffering upon suffering upon suffering. Yeah, it's like these people have already been through a decade of unimaginable suffering. 
you have hundreds of Syrian refugees in this part of Turkey, as you said, and then this this was like the heart, right? Uh, I mean, you're talking about places like Aleppo. You're talking about places in northern Syria yeah. that saw the it worst lived, fighting. Aleppo, yeah. And and like you know, Kareem, who we had on, like I, I know him because there's an organization, Amna, that that he's on the board of. And Zarl Shalamzai has been on this podcast. They they deal with childhood trauma, so they they provide mental health care for refugee children who've been traumatized, and they worked in that area. And I, I make this point only to showcase it like, imagine a child who's been dealing with the trauma of war and then the trauma of displacement and then the trauma of being in kind of a suspended state of uncertainty about your yeah. future and then this refugee crisis. And so absolutely, I think he's right. And we have in the show notes, you know, Amna and, and some of the Syrian uh, medical units that are going to be on the ground in a place where there really is no infrastructure other than what can be provided by donors. Yeah. And these aren't simple injuries either. These are like bones getting crushed. You know, it's like complicated yeah. stuff that requires like real capacity. And it's also, Tommy, what really got me is you look into this, and we were talking about this before we came on, is that the people who survived, they're, they're homeless and they've lost everything and they didn't have mm-hmm. much to begin with. And yeah. so it's going to take a lot of international donor assistance to just keep these people alive and, and okay. And it's cold there right now. So yes, anything that can be done carve-outs for sanctions, international relief. Uh, we encourage you guys to donate to organizations. Um, it's just, this needs help. On the Turkey piece, it did seem like, it, you know, it took way too long. I mean, because you're, you're dealing with a rescue cir- circumstance where, you know, every hour is precious here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just from watching the news reports, it did feel like it took 24, 48 hours in some cases to get help down there. And, um, I, I think it does call into question the competence of the government handling this. And and you don't exactly see Erdogan like on the ground there with the victims. I mean, maybe I'd miss something here, but I, I, he, he is one of these older out of touch leaders who, who may have just kind of just missed the, the scale of what needed to be dealt with here. And so it is worth watching how this interacts with their politics this year. Yeah, this is truly a historic disaster. So just a couple of organizations to consider when you're if you want to make a donation. Uh, The Union for Medical and Relief Organizations and the Syrian American Medical Society are providing medical services. Uh, The White Helmets are are searching for survivors. Save the Children is working on the ground to help kids and families with clothing and shelter and food. We spoke with the Save the Children CEO on last week's episode. They're an amazing group. Uh, And the International Rescue Committee, uh, the Red Crescent, they're doing great work. So a bunch of options there to consider. So Ben, uh, turning the, to Africa, so the Pope has been making a lot of news. Yeah. Uh, first, Pope Francis denounced the criminalization of homosexuality and said LGBT people should be accepted by their churches. Pretty historic stuff. This, he said it a couple times, I think, but most recently while flying back from a six-day trip to Africa that included stops in Congo and South Sudan. South Sudan is one of 67 countries that criminalizes homosexuality, so a poignant and direct message to the place he just was. Pope Francis's final event during his visit was delivering mass to over 100,000 people in South Sudan, uh, which is predominantly Christian, unlike its neighbor, Sudan, uh, which is predominantly Muslim. And while in Congo, uh, Pope Francis repeatedly denounced political corruption during a a speech to 65,000 mostly young people. Uh, This is an issue Pope Francis cares about and talks about a lot. He wrote a book about it and is a huge problem in Congo. About half of the 105 million citizens of Congo are Catholic. This was Francis's fifth trip to the continent of Africa over the last decade. Ben, so I'm not I'm not 
particularly religious at all. I have also a very deep skepticism of most religious institutions, especially the Catholic Church for obvious reasons. But I do often think about kind of how surprising and lucky the world was when Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, stepped down surprisingly and was replaced by Francis, this like much more moderate, flawed, but you know, seemingly decent man who tries very hard to be a, a force for calm and peace and good. And I mean, all these trips are like pretty, um, some pretty intense diplomacy here. Yeah, I was very moved by it. Um, and and I have to say, like, Tommy, you and I worked on South Sudan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this hopeful moment when uh, South Sudan became an independent country. Um, and then it's just been such a tragedy since as their leaders have been fighting, you know, each other yeah. as the natural resources, the oil and gas that was supposed to kind of give them a basis for a state has basically been stolen by those very same leaders. Um, and the world's attention inevitably kind of moves on, even yeah. though you have these enormous refugee and internally displaced problems and violence and famine. And to see Pope Francis go there, and by the way, he didn't just parachute in. He's been working on, say, South Sudan for years. Like he had the two warring leaders. He kissed their feet um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago to send a message to, of they, they, how they needed to forgive each other. Like he's very active um, and the church on the ground is one of the only institutions trying to actually help people there. So for, for, for me to see him go over there, bring the world's attention on this, show the people there that, that he cared. Um, I mean, it was a really powerful, uh, example that he's setting and, and he's an old man. This is not this is not like easy travel to yeah, make. He's 86. Yeah. And, and so I just, I, I think it's a great role for the Catholic church to play because it's a kind of a shame on all of us in the U.S. and other countries that have kind of our attentions moved on from these places. Um, and hopefully what it can do is catalyze, make people there feel seen, um, help encourage, incentivize those leaders to at least make things a little bit better, but also get the international community focused on this again. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I think, it, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for bringing this attention. And we should say, like, the Catholic, you know, priests on the ground are often the ones doing really hard work and really difficult circumstances. And so you saw some of those people in Congo and and in Juba and South Sudan as well. Yeah. Uh, another country that needs some sustained international attention and, and help is Haiti. Uh, Haiti is still dealing with unimaginable levels of gang violence and political dysfunction. Haiti's president was assassinated in July of 2021. Four of the suspects in that case were recently transferred to the United States because the local judges involved in their prosecution were facing death threats. As of mid-January, Haiti has literally no elected officials left in office. That's because the terms of the last 10 senators uh, in parliament who'd been elected expired. So every official currently in government is working in some sort of acting capacity because there hasn't been an election in Haiti since 2019. Experts estimate that the government really only controls about a third of the capital city, Port-au-Prince. Gangs control far more territory. For the last year or so, there's been sort of periodic talk about whether some sort of international peacekeeping force should go into Haiti and try to help restore order. This is an incredibly fraught debate, uh, especially for the United States, given the long and awful history of the United States and other countries meddling in Haiti's affairs uh, to the great uh, detriment of the people there. Um, I did think it was worth mentioning a new poll that Reuters reported on that found about 70% of Haitians surveyed backed creating an international force to help the police fight gangs. And I saw that the Jamaican prime minister said Jamaica would be willing to be a part of some sort of international deployment to Haiti. So again, I have no idea 
what the right answer is here, Ben. But it was interesting to see this data because one of the things we've talked about, right, is listening to the people of Haiti about their own future. And it was interesting to me that there could be sort of a, a Caribbean regional approach maybe anchored by Jamaica. No, I think that's right. I mean, this just keeps getting worse. And it doesn't feel to me like there's a way that the kind of continued descent into even darker dysfunction and instability there is going to be arrested absent some international, I, I was going to say intervention, I don't mean like a war, but like, I, I, I think we have to be thinking about what are all the ways in which we can surge like an international capability to help both with policing and with kind of the you know beginnings of restoring some semblance of governance. You don't, you know, under Bill Clinton, it was like a U.S. invasion of Haiti. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. No. And I think you make a really good point. I think the, the Caribbean countries have an organization called CARICOM, um, which is a really good basis to for the U.S. to engage the Caribbean. Um, and then you have, you know, I think a bunch of, of leaders in Latin America. Brazil uh, has been involved in Haiti in the past, uh, including, I think, you know, when Lula was last in government. I think that the task with the United States diplomatically is how do you get the broadest set of countries in this hemisphere, hopefully with the Caribbean countries uh, and somewhat in the lead, to be a part of a mixture of policing support, governance support, donations. There has to be kind of a surge Services, of, of, aid, yeah. Yeah, of all this stuff. And yes, you have to guard against the, the past when a lot of money was, was wasted in corruption or ill-spent. But this is just a human catastrophe that is also a very real border issue for the United States um, that, that has to be dealt with. Yes, leading to more migration. Um, uh, a few important updates about the war in Ukraine, Ben. So first, you know, a lot of everyone seems to think that the uh, big Russian counteroffensive is about to start or is basically already started in eastern or southern Ukraine. Russia has had several months now to conscript and train some new troops. So they have a manpower advantage they didn't have before that is worrisome. Fear of that offensive is is part of why the Ukrainians have really been upping the pressure on weapons shipments as of late. Uh, earlier today, Tuesday, uh, Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands pledged to give Ukraine at least 100 Leopard 1 battle tanks in the coming months. That's in addition to Germany allowing the transfer of the more modern Leopard 2 tanks, so those weapons are coming. Also, the U.S. finally agreed to send longer-range bombs to Ukraine. They're called the ground-launched small-diameter bombs. They can hit targets uh, 90 miles away, which is well above the current HIMARS range of 50 miles. And those are part of a $2.17 billion package that was announced last week, though I think it'll take a long time, like many months, up to maybe nine months, to get those things sort of on the battlefield and, and usable. And then finally, the European Union, uh, some of the leadership, traveled to Kiev for talks with President Zelensky last week. Zelensky has been pushing very hard for fast track membership into the EU. The EU is, you know, a little less excited about that idea. Yeah. Their message is basically like, we're with you, but pump the brakes on membership. Finally, Ben, U.S. officials say that Russia is violating the New START uh, nuclear arms control treaty by not allowing the inspections that are required. Uh, New START was negotiated by President Obama in his first term and, and extended in 2021 for five more years. It caps the number of nuclear warheads deployed by the U.S. and Russia and the means of delivering them. It is kind of the last gasp semblance of arms control left after Trump and Pompeo kind of dismantled a lot of that architecture. So any thoughts from you on, you know, this EU membership push from Ukraine or this very disconcerting news that Russia seems to be backing away from New START? Well, I think first on the EU piece, um, 
symbolically and substantively, it's it's kind of really important that that however this war ends, Ukraine should be part of Europe. You know, um, and 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 you, we hear about victory and what does that mean? You, precisely because I think it's going to be complicated. Like, unlo- you know, I don't think anybody foresees the Ukrainians marching into Moscow and removing the Russian government or something. No, um, and you would hope that maybe Putin goes and the, there's some full restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty. But put that aside, Russia's war, they should fail in a number of respects, <laughs> hopefully all of respects, but they should certainly fail at, at their effort to kind of take over Ukraine. But they should also fail as like an aggressor that was seeking to control Ukraine's own choices about whether they draw closer to Europe or whether they uh, are kind of under Russian domination. I say that to make the point that like Ukraine joining the EU is what the Ukrainian people want. Um, and it would be the ultimate rebuke to what Putin was trying to do by saying, no, you don't get to be part of Europe. You have to be part of us. And so I totally understand that there's a lot that goes along with EU membership. You know, there's a lot of bells and whistles and hoops you have to jump through. And it's not as simple as just saying today you're a member because, you know, there's just, sometimes there's a currency union and then there's right, a freedom of movement union, there's regulations. I think what the Europeans need to do is kind of create a new category, you know, like where they don't just sound bureaucratic, like, well, no, you're not ready. We'll talk about that later. They have to kind of signal like this is happening. Like Ukraine is a part of the European Union. They're they're on this pathway and they're going to have to figure out a way where it's not maybe the exact same list of steps that every country had to do. Are there some things that can be accelerated for the Ukrainians and some things that's not? Like you may not be able to set up like Ukraine's in the exact same regulatory framework as France, but like what what can you give them in terms of membership faster? Because I think that that's a really important message to send that like, this invasion is going to fail and these people are going to be part of Europe, which is what they want. Um, New START is really troubling. I mean, I, I, I still think that you want that in place. Obviously, if the Russians are just out of it, they're out of it. But like, why is it worth preserving? Like you want eyes on those Russian nuclear weapons. You know, exactly. I mean, a lot of the verification is like being able to go inspect where they are and what they're doing. So I, I think it's worth preserving as complicated as that is. Unless the Russians are just, you know, not interested, in which case it's, you know, we're flying blind on nuclear weapons, which we haven't been in a very long time. I mean, there, this would be the first time in decades that there hasn't been some arms control regime like this in place. Yeah, it's very scary stuff. I mean, it, what it sounds like is the Russians are just saying, hey, listen, now is not the right time to let a bunch of American inspectors come to our military bases. And like, kind of, I get where they're coming from on that front, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's acceptable. The EU thing, I, I agree with you. I think it's important. And it also... It helps you avoid the whole question of uh, allowing Ukraine into NATO right now and the sort of collect- Article 5 collective response World War Three concern that we all share. I-, I-, I, too, am a little confused why the EU member or leadership are kind of slow walking this unless maybe, I don't know, maybe there's concern among EU member states that would make it harder. Yeah, and no, I just come up with a different category then. You know, like I get that you they can't, you know, be a full member of the EU tomorrow because they, they just probably technically can't. But but there's got to be a different way of, of, of uh, approaching this. Yeah. Uh, last story. So here's a headline that you don't see every day. It's from Vice News. Uh, quote, Taliban bureaucrats hate working online all day, miss the days of jihad. Interviews with five former Taliban fighters reveal the crushing ennui of office life in the big city. Uh, this article uh, is based on a series of interviews with Taliban members who hate their new desk jobs. 
They were conducted by a nonprofit research agency called the Afghanistan Analytics Network. Here's a quote from one of the guys they talked to. I sometimes miss the jihad life for all the good things it had, said 25-year-old uh, Abdul Najif. In our ministry, there's little work for me to do. Therefore, I spend most of my time on Twitter. We're connected to speedy Wi-Fi and internet. Many Mujahideen, including me, are addicted to the internet, especially Twitter. Uh, there was another guy, Ben, who was pissed about having to clock in at eight and then stay there till four. Otherwise, you get your pay docked. We've all been there. I, you know, listen, change is hard. Starting a new uh, job can be tough. I know you don't fit in. You don't have friends right away, guys. One idea for these these Taliban uh, bureaucrats, what if you stop slowly strangling your country to death and actually help the human beings uh, yeah. starving to death? You might find that fulfilling. Maybe you let women do those jobs and then you yeah. can go out and knock yourselves out. I go mean, um, I, I, the, the, the Twitter thing may get them too. Maybe Twitter will defeat them. And, and you know, uh, I, I, the, here's the interesting thing. I, I, I was very interested. Your interview last week was really good. And... Um, I was particularly interested in her comments about this kind of split between mm-hmm. the Kandahar kind of clerics who yeah. are issuing all these hardline edicts and stuff. And then these like people probably like this, who are like sitting in ministries in Kabul, like, well, what the fuck do we do? How do we run this place? It does raise an interesting question over time at whether there's anything that can be done by the international community to kind of like, you know, split off, you know, incentivize, like, I hate even saying moderate related to the Taliban, but like incentivize the kind of more technocratic aspects of the people in Kabul from the kind of, you know, just retro misogynist creeps down in Kandahar, like, because just sanctioning everybody, I don't think it works. So there may be something there about uh, what do you do? Is there, what kind of government do you want to see there in five or 10 years? And is there anything we can do to, to nudge it in the right direction? Yeah. And like, you know, I think the sort of perverse incentives uh, that get created when the Taliban does something truly heinous, yeah. like you know not letting girls go to school or not letting women uh, into NGOs, is that it makes it even easier for the United States or other Western countries to just fully cut them off and not really like debate or address the much harder issues of should we lift sanctions? You know, yeah. should we try to find a path forward? Not necessarily recognize the Taliban government right away, but like find a way to work with them to save a whole bunch of lives, innocent lives, kids, women, children, right? And I, I agree with you. I mean, maybe there is some sort of faction that will look around at what's happening in the country and think, we don't want this. I don't care what some guy in Kandahar says. Yeah, for our own survival, you know? And the people who know that that dynamic that you describe are the creeps in Kandahar. You know, they know yeah. that, like, they can just, you know, like throw a hand grenade in any effort to kind of improve the lives of people there. So, um, you know, we have to... We have to just our mess. Our metric in Afghanistan should be: Is there anything we can do to make life marginally better for more people, particularly women? You know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. So stick around for that. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. 
when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Well, I'm very pleased uh, to be joined by uh, Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman from Minnesota. Welcome back to Ponzi of the World. Yeah, thank you for having me. So obviously I want to start with uh, the news of the last few days with the Republican effort to remove you from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. For people who haven't been following this and may not understand something as uh, as is misguided and illogical and, and bigoted as this, uh, to tell us tell tell us what happened, what this means for your your uh, your service uh, on that committee and in Congress. Yeah, for those that don't know, uh, for the last two terms in in Congress, I was on the. Foreign Affairs Committee and on the Education um, Labor Committee. I also briefly, in my first term, served on the Budget Committee. Uh, Republicans have been uh, pushing since I got sworn in in 2019 uh, to not seat me on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, some reason they believe um, there's a there's a a threshold of Americanness <laughs> uh, that 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 I I have to cross before I'm able to um, you know talk about American foreign policy and critique it and possibly advance a um, a, a better um, um, path forward for our foreign policy. Uh, and, you know, they they made a promise that if they were ever to have the majority, that they would do that. And so last week uh, they were able to um, have a floor vote and in a part in a partisan way um, vote to take me off. Uh, every single Democrat voted to keep me on the committee, which is um, the, the distinction, because a lot of them kept talking about, you know, how. The Democrats in the majority took members off of their committees and that, you know, this sort of fit with with that standard. But the reality is the House voted to remove those two members from the committees from inciting violence and threatening yeah. lives of, of their colleagues. And it was a bipartisan um, House vote to, to do so. Uh, and this was a very partisan um, Republican saying you know, we we want a certain person um, who who will co-sign um, the 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 current status quo on foreign policy, will not critique the United States and its any of its misguided foreign policy, um, and will not critique the the foreign policy of of Israel um, or our allies. Okay, so I mean, obviously, it's not hard to to surmise that uh, you know that that a good chunk of this is racialized, uh, you know, um, 
kind of anti-black, anti-Muslim bigotry. Some of it is just, you know, jingoistic Republican politics. Uh, I, I want to talk about a few pieces of this, though. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, what message do you think this sends around the world? Like at a time, you know, you'll hear people talk about how the United States needs to do more to appeal to people in the global south, uh, people uh, who are fighting for human rights around the world. I would imagine that a healthy share of those people see you as uh, someone who represents the America that they want to look up to more than, you know, people like Paul Gosar, you know, who are removed from committees for their kind of incitement of violence. I mean, or do you worry about the message this sends to the rest of the world that is watching this and is seeing someone like you denied a voice on that committee? Uh, yes. You know, we... Uh... You know, as as you know, you served under uh, the Obama administration. Um, you know, we hold other uh, countries to 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 a standard that says, you know, you 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 have to have an open society, you have to have open debate, um, respect democratic principles um, of allowing you know dissenting voices to to exist in the political discourse. Um, and now, what the Republicans have done is say. Here in the United States, a country that uh, talks a lot about the freedom of speech, um, the, the the rights that we say are enshrined in our first in the First Amendment of the Constitution, um, whether it's religious liberty um, uh, or advancing coexistence, uh, that we are somehow deciding to to reject that um, uh, because we can't seat sit, sit, seat this member of Congress on this particular committee, because unlike the other ones, again, I'm not removed from all of my committees. Um, So saying you can't participate in this one conversation in one, in this one debate um, clearly sets a a message to uh, the rest of the world um, that, that, that we are not the America uh, that we say that we are. We are not upholding the values that we say we believe in. And I think to many um, Africans, you know, to to see the the first black member of Congress to have been born um, on the continent of Africa, who came to the United States as a refugee, um, who overcame uh, great tragedies to to rise to a position of um, of, of power to have been elected uh, by her constituents that don't share um, cultural uh, that many of them don't share a cultural religious um, or um, racial identity with um, that many people took pride in. And uh, now is somehow being denied the opportunity to serve as the ranking member on the Africa subcommittee that she has been on, like many people have celebrated. Yeah, no, it's a it's a just a missed opportunity to have have your voice there for so many reasons. I did want to press on our party, the Democratic Party, which, uh, you know, I was glad to see everybody rally to your defense um, and some quite powerful statements made Um by uh, by a number of members. But the, the reality is, is uh, for instance, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Sarah Margon, who was nominated for the Assistant Secretary for Democracy, and her nomination got killed mainly because of Israel, because she tweeted something about Airbnb and settlements, and she'd been involved with Human Rights Watch. Uh, but you could kind of go on down the line, and the reality is that you know when you uh, got attacked a few years ago 
because APAC didn't like some things you said. You know, a lot of Democrats went along with that, and 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 a lot of Democrats didn't stand up. You know, Sarah Morgan could have been con- confirmed, frankly, if, if if Senator Menendez would have let that come to a vote. Even though it's not Democrats who removed you, obviously, does some of the defensiveness that Democrats kind of intuitively have around certain issues, uh, and I've been involved in this, but on Israel or on Cuba or on on other things, do you think that this event should kind of force us to kind of look inward about? Hey, are we facilitating this politics when we kind of go go along with it? Um, because you know, absent some of that yeah. kind of full outrage, we might not have gotten here. You know. Yeah, and uh, you know, to to your credit, four years ago, um, when when this happened, uh, you you were out there speaking about the dangers of going down this this road, right? Um, of of not. Um, calling folks in before you call them out um uh for for not continuing to stand for the the right of someone to um to to advocate for uh the 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 rights of Palestinians um for you know advancing human rights and um advocating for folks to have access um uh, through international um, access to justice through uh, international law. Um, I, I do hope that this serves uh, at least a cautionary tale um, for for Democrats, and I and I think it it has, which is why you saw so many folks um, who were in the forefront of this um, recognize the, the 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 damage and and the misguided ways that um, their words now were being weaponized. Um, to 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 somehow make me seem like I am I I'm not someone uh, who who is solely here to to advocate for for peace uh, to fight against bigotry um, and someone who who really just wants us to live up <laughs> to the words yeah. that we say and 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 the things that we have the policies that we have on paper. Uh, you know, and, and just continuing this thread a bit, I mean, how do we apply this standard around human rights and democracy across the board? You know, it's not just Israel. Like we, if you look at uh, India, um, geopolitically important in the United States, but a, a very disturbing Hindu nationalist direction under Prime Minister Modi. Obviously, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, also countries that have traditionally been aligned with the United States on certain issues, but uh, have terrible human rights records, um, both within their borders and sometimes exporting that. Um, you know, how can the United States try to be more consistent? Um, and what can people like you in Congress do uh, to to at least try to you know understand? Yes, there may be geopolitical realities where we have relationships with people we don't agree with everything they do. But how do we continue to not turn a blind eye to abuses when they may be happening in countries that that have some shared geopolitical interests with the U.S. Yeah, I mean that 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 really has been um, sort of a, a lot of my work is 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 to say you know we 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 at least have the have to hold the line um, when when it comes to um, not just uh, spewing these um, talking points about our our values uh, when it comes to human rights um, and law and order. Uh, but we 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 have to carry it out um, in in our everyday actions. Um, it's it's one thing to 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 care about allies 
but once you say, you know, this allyship is based on um, these principles or these values, when those principles and values are uh, challenged, then then you must have the prerogative <laughs> um, yeah. to say, you know, hey, <laughs> Uh, at least you're making me look bad, right? Um, because I'm I'm saying I share a value with you, and um, when when you are uh, not upholding those values, then then it is only right that I say to you, this is wrong. Like it shouldn't be that hard for the United States um, to forcefully uh, condemn um, the 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 Saudi led coalition, you know, when they uh, blow up bridges, hospitals, um, when when they are actively starving Yemenis, this is one of the most populated uh, country in the Middle East, the poorest. The the people have been devastated over over the years. Children have been uh, slaughtered, um, and and for us to continue our allyship as if nothing had happened and not speak about uh, what is taking place is wrong. Um, you you look at right now what's happening um, with Netanyahu's government um, in carrying out collective punishment. Um, you, you, you want somebody to say, hey, that's against international law. It's against the, the Geneva Convention. Um, you can't carry out uh, collective punishment. Um, you know, when you look at India, we've been asking for it to be designated as a country of concern. I've questioned Blinken's um, undersecretary uh, on this. Um, it, it's it's odd to me that that hasn't uh, taken place because we have put allies or other countries that are that have been allied with us over the years um as a we've designated it as a country of concern you know you have the situation in in Ethiopia um yeah. where it's taken uh, many uh pushes uh from me and and others on the committee uh to to question the state department on, on what was happening there like how long will it take for us to forcefully uh, speak out against the, the the devastation that's taking place uh, in in Ethiopia, and so time and time again, this continues to happen. We obviously do not hesitate to call out human rights violations that are taking place by our adversaries, um, yeah. and and the world n- notices that that hypocrisy, um, and the world. Uh, then gets into a position where they disregard our concern and our calls for justice because they know that uh, we don't do it across the board. Um, and, and that pus- pushes our diplomacy, our advocacy, our engagement across the world uh, in, in jeopardy. Yeah, no, it's really well said. And and as I always point out, I mean, it's not like we don't criticize ourselves either. <laughs> you know, like we apply the same standard at home. Uh, when we see injustice. Well, one last question for you, which is how do you uh, plan to, to kind of to continue to be heard on these things, uh, given you know, the removal from the committee? Do you like have you given thought to how we obviously would love to have you on platform anytime. But um, h- how do you want to continue to use your voice even in the aftermath of this vote? Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said earlier, um, I, I I campaigned um, on on my critique uh, around our our foreign policy and those um, around the world. Uh, I you know represent a district that deeply cares about this uh, and having a voice there. 
Um, and so I will continue to, to, to utilize whatever platform I have as a member of Congress and as a leader uh, to, to speak on, on these issues. You know, obviously doing it with you today uh, matters, but we're uh, in, in, in regards to Africa, we're, we're setting up um, an Africa working group um, that will allow us to cultivate some conversations and partnerships around, um, you know, creating a, a stronger um, partnership with the continent of Africa. Um, and, you know, I will continue to, 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 to speak about, you know, the, the things that are happening in Central America around our trade agreements um, and our policies uh, towards Central America that continue um, to, to help create the, the kind of uh, migration crises that we're seeing. Um, and and certainly, you know, speak up for uh, those that have been uh, denied justice and and living with the tragedies of um, either being in war or surviving war. Well, that's good. You have a much bigger megaphone than you know. I dare I say a bunch of members on that committee, but uh, you're, you're welcome on this committee anytime, Congresswoman Omar. It's great to talk to you. Good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks again to uh, Congresswoman Ilan Omar for, for joining the show today. Is this immature? I'm 42 years old. It's more mature than like yelling about Joe Biden resigning because of a board. Yeah, that was Joe Wilson. Uh, that, is that the you lie with Joe Wilson? I think it was. That is, yeah. Like, uh, you know, we'll see what, what he a, brings tonight. What a, I like, what a I liked that the balloon was tenure. in the backdrop the whole time, too. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I should have got some nitrous balloons. You ever done that? I, I had a nitrous dentist appointment the first time ever the other day. Big recommendation. So this is what a meathead I was in uh, high school. Um, like, I, I don't think this should uh, impede any future employment of mine, hopefully. But uh, we'd get those nitrous balloons. And we figured out, because we were 16-year-old boys, that the brief high that you'd get from inhaling the nitrous balloon was enhanced if you ran at full speed while inhaling the balloon. <laughs> that is such a meathead move. <laughs> so picture a bunch of like 16-year-old meatheads running across Riverside Park and West Side New York and Ellie Nitrous. I've definitely time. done the like uh, wander into the woods at the concert, come out with the balloon version yeah, yeah. of this. Yeah. Having tubes strapped to your nose for an hour uh, while you get your you know cavity filled was a whole new ballgame. Was it I good? tweeted I mean, about that. It- Someone yelled at me about the climate change implications of getting nitrous at the dentist. And I just want that person to know, I don't care what you say. I wish I had nitrous because I just got some dental work done. And let me tell you, it wasn't wasn't fun. It Uh, is miserable. I have huge dental anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's it's not good. Uh, Um, Well, that's uh, that's all I got. Uh, Good luck tonight, Joe Biden, State of the Union. You'll hear this tomorrow. I know you listen every day. Uh, But congrats. It went well. Yeah. Excellent deal. You really down with the balloon. Put it to rest. It really deflated that balloon controversy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, all right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.